0: Welcome to the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm your host, Tristan Grunow. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Christopher Craig, Assistant Professor of History at Tohoku University in Sendai, Japan. Dr. Craig's dissertation is The Middlemen of Modernity, Local Elites, and Agricultural Development in 20th Century Japan. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Christopher Craig from Tohoku University in
1: Sendai. Uh, Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be back in Vancouver. I I haven't really been here for 11 years, but I only have the best memories of UBC in Vancouver. (laughs) I want to start our conversation by asking
0: how, in your research, has the Meiji Restoration uh, played a role, or how how has it impacted your research? How do you approach it in your research?
1: Well, the influence of of the restoration itself on my research is is probably best described as a, as an indirect relationship. Um, it, I get something of a different perspective on it than maybe what is normal because my history is very intensely a local history. Uh, so I'm doing the particular regional local history of Miyagi Prefecture. Uh, which, you know, it has a something of a significant role in the conflicts that led up to the Restoration, but um, it's not so tightly related to what the master narrative of the Restoration is usually presented as. So I suppose the way that the Restoration appears in my research, the way that my research might illustrate anything about the Restoration would be in the general influence, the results, uh, the way that regions reacted to it, the effects that it had on maybe lives and a manner of lifestyle in agricultural villages that were not so dramatically affected by the restoration as, as some of the narratives that are more commonly treated.
0: And certainly when we get away from the center, sometimes it's it's we get an even better perspective on those policies. So it, can you think of any examples say from the perspective of the local farmers that you're talking about uh, that that does kind of uh, contrast with this conventional or standard narrative of the restoration
1: yeah i've come across a, a few interesting things the one one that just jumps to mind right now is uh, I'm looking at uh, a village in which um, flood control was was a big problem. And in fact, this was two villages that were in some degree of tension over a particular body of water that was providing irrigation water and water supply on one side, while at the same time it was a threat of flooding uh, on the other side. So uh, a delicate balance had been established between these two villages based on the sort of coercive authority of the pre-restoration political entities in the in the area. So it was a, a peace that was enforced um, with, you know, some threat of force at the back of it. When the restoration happened, all the, the, the there was an awareness that this uh, the the form of political power that had existed up to this point and and had existed in a very concrete form in maintaining the peace over this waterway, was no longer going to be effective, and both sides uh, on this waterway moved quickly to. Not to take advantage of the situation, but to try and ensure that something was in place that would ensure that their interests continued to be um, represented and defended in an effective way.
0: How does the Meiji period and the Meiji Restoration and some of the advancements that Japan experiences at that time play into what you're looking at now?
1: Yeah, so the, Meiji, uh, the Meiji Revolution or Restoration um, as I mentioned it doesn't for a lot of people in farming villages it didn't have a direct and immediate sort of relevance in the in the way that we might expect when we think about a revolutionary change um, but especially in terms of agriculture uh, there is a, somewhat of a diffuse change it takes a few years to roll out but um it's it's in the realm of imagination and possibilities there becomes an awareness among these you know very normal kinds of farmers about Things that are newly possible, um, and, and these are not always informed by a, a very realistic sense of what's happening. But um, there's ideas about ways that farmland can be improved, about the, the possibilities of machinery uh, mechanism for for agriculture, um, the direct application to things like seeds. Um, these these appear on the mental mental landscape of farmers, um, at least some farmers, uh, and so uh, you have the evolution of of ambitious plans in places. Sometimes this exab- exacerbates tensions, um, sometimes it diffuses tensions, um, but it, it always has a kind of impact and it creates this dynamic response that really makes it a very interesting period to look at agricultural change. Uh, in, It's an interesting period to look at all manner of change, but this is how it's interesting to look at agricultural change.
0: Now, one of the standard narratives of, of the Tokugawa period is: is you get this uh, very rapid agricultural growth in the early part of the Tokugawa period, uh, the Pax Tokugawa as some scholars have even called it uh, but then maybe after about the first hundred years or so, and, and, and of course this is Totman's thesis, right? Where Then there's this kind of stagnation and decline. Does it pick back up after the Meiji period or, or how what, what what kind of things do you see from the perspective of northern Miyagi? Yeah,
1: so the the narrative of Tokugawa agricultural development, as you say, we have a, a period of what's considered growth and, and prosperity followed by a period of stagnation, um, and the period of stagnation is generally a little longer. But that's really a story about population. So this is how they're measuring the, the prosperity is in terms of uh, uh, population growth uh, among rural communities, and almost all communities are rural at that time, uh, followed by a period of stagnation, and, and you have these, these interesting effects of stagnation like the um, inf- types of infanticide and and um, dealing with the the famines uh the, the various the three large famines in particular um, <clears throat> so I don't believe that northern Miyagi comes directly out of this um, period of stagnation into a new kind of prosperity in the same way that the earlier Edo period had been prosperity. The the Meiji Restoration does not cause this kind of change in northern Miyagi. Rather, um, northern Miyagi is almost at the boundaries of where agriculture is viable, or at least the kinds of agriculture, the rice production that they're doing. Um, And so it's very much a a marginal area. It's a a risky enterprise at the beginning of the Meiji period. And so we don't have an immediate move towards prosperity or anything like that. Um, But what happens over time is that this new imagination about what's possible in agriculture, the gradual application of new technologies to agriculture and new organizational technologies as well, um, takes effect over a period of decades after the Meiji Restoration. So by the time we're moving into Taisho, late Taisho, into Showa, there are big differences um, that are appearing. My own research is actually about the transitional period when these initiatives are being undertaken, this, these improvements are being attempted, um, and it's being hashed out which ones are actually improvements and who they're improving for and um, what the goals are. Uh, that, as a, as, a collect, uh, as a result of them all together, then leads to this later um, success and expansion of production, um, increased wealth for agricultural communities. So I, I, if you want to you know, pitch your book, or, or
0: you know, what, what was the argument uh, that you're making?
1: Yeah, so my, my particular research, my book that I'm working on right now, um, is an examination of the role of local elites. Um, so we're talking about landlords in villages in northern Miyagi. Uh, their role in promoting agricultural improvement, Um, and the effects of their involvement in it. So uh, from an earlier period on, the Meiji government identifies these landlords, these rural landlords, as the ones that are to be the agents of rural improvement, agricultural improvement, um, of uh, increasing production of agricultural goods, of creating prosperity within villages that will prevent um, sort of discontent or uprisings uh, and creating social harmony in villages um, so to this end the government gives a great deal of leeway to local landlords to shape what is defined as improvement and what forms of improvement is going to take um, and it doesn't always have the results that the the planners in the government would like to see. Um, And rather predictably, uh, the landlords very often find their own interests to be the thing that defines what uh, improvement is going to be like. And in Northern Miyagi, they are quite effective in enforcing uh, an order that places them very much in charge of tenants that, that degrades uh, the conditions that a lot of tenants live under and that maximizes profits for landlords at the expense of tenants. So it, there, there is a degree of improvement. There's a degree of increased prosperity that is monopolized uh, by the landlords. And at the same time they're doing this, they are also proving very effective at manipulating central authorities um, to seed them more power to to legitimize aspects of their power, to mobilize the police in enforcing tenancy contracts, for example. They, they mobilize the police in northern Miyagi to actually enforce the types of improved agriculture that they demand tenants um, perform and that they demand that they do, um, which often includes a great deal more labor on the part of the tenant farmers, without offering them any profits, um, and in place of the motivation that profits would present, instead they present a coercive argument in the form of police mobilized by the prefecture to enforce this improved agriculture. So it really calls into question what we're calling improvements as well. This is this is an issue that needs to be dealt with. So my research as a whole then investigates uh, well, explores this this period of time between roughly eighteen mid eighteen eighties to. Um, well 1910 in the major action uh, and uh, this period of increased uh, authority placed behind landlords the the types of uh, agricultural change they promoted um, and the effects uh, how this all plays out in the end and uh, in the end what happens is that the government grows quite unhappy with what has happened and it goes on to take a much more direct role it, it assumes uh, a direct responsibility for some of the a lot of the improvements that they had um, designated uh, deputized landlords to do. So what you were mentioning
0: about the, this kind of give and take between the Meiji government and the local forces, uh, and this question of when we talk about the restoration, was it something that was centrally controlled and, and kind of a top-down thing or, or versus a bottom-up thing, uh, really calls to mind the work, say, of Neil Waters, uh, Brian Platt, uh, Karin Wiegand. Uh, where would you sit yourself in that situation, in that discussion?
1: Yeah, um, I have been very influenced by, by the work that, that you mentioned here, especially um, Karin Wiegand's work and, and and Waters' work. And there, as you say, there's this major question about sort of the location of, of movement, uh, of sort of agency to a certain extent. Um, there's another dimension as well, too, which is uh, the idea of a, a monolithic governmental, central governmental structure, when in fact a lot of the time it was sort of competing um, bureaucrats and, and ministries that were not necessarily on the same page. Uh, all of which gets complicated further with the opening of the diet and the injection of landlord politics in a more direct way to budget formation and and things like this. Um, So this is a question I'm very interested in and informs what I'm trying to do on every level, but it's it's a very complex question and... uh, I am I, not sure how possible it is for me to offer uh, an answer to it in any way. There's uh, influence, uh, important influence coming from from every direction, um, which is probably what I'm trying to to illustrate in, in in the book as a whole.
0: One argument I was always struck by uh, regarding this question of you know, give and take, push versus pull, is: Is it possible that the the Meiji regime? I mean, certainly the, the, they weren't monolithic. Uh, but they did have an idea of what they wanted to accomplish. And so they weren't going to design every single policy for every single uh, region. But in, in general, you could, could we say that the Meiji regime was able to set the parameters for the discussion and say, well, we want you to improve agriculture. We want you to improve the roads or something like this, uh, And then was, did this purposely to give the local forces a bit of autonomy to make
1: sure that it was accomplished yeah this actually hits at something that is the heart of of, of the argument I suppose i'm presenting in the book um, this is the, the heart of the story that i that i'm talking about so um, especially in terms of uh agriculture um, and in terms of um, trying to shepherd the development of uh, farming villages, the Meiji government from the beginning takes uh as hands off an approach as it can um, it's It's definitely not interested in devoting the scarce funds it has at its disposal on farming and farming villages. So they identify uh, villages as sort of secret storehouses of untapped uh, improvement power that that landlords are in the best position to, to mobilize. And the government's role then is, as you say, um, sort of to say what they would like to see uh, and then allow the villages themselves to do it, and you know the story of uh, Meiji administrative interaction with farming villages is a story of trying to stay away from them. This is um, the so-called uh, autonomous villages that they try to promote in the 90s. It's not so autonomous. To suggest that you know they're they're outside of the authority of uh, the government, or that that villages are able to to chart their own goals and their own paths. Really, it, it's an indication that villages are on their own in funding and planning these things that the government wants to see happen. Um, <clears throat> the story then, as, as comes out with these farmers in northern Miyagi, is that from the 1890s onward, the landlords prove to be capable of manipulating the government increasingly to actually offer some resources to them to uh, accomplish their kinds of improvement, while at the same time keeping government forces interested in keeping their hands off, staying away. So it almost inverses what the the government had been aiming for Um, instead of stating its goals and giving no resources, they are giving resources for goals that landlords have identified. Um, And this is done not by clueless government officials, of course. Um, There's still a belief that it's going to go in the direction they want, and in some ways it is going in the direction they want. Um, The government's very interested in rationalizing certain uh, practices, agricultural practices, to uh, create a kind of modern agricultural production. This is something that also uh, landlords are interested in. Uh, where the landlord interests and uh, the interests of many bureaucrats diverge, and this divergence becomes increasingly clear in the first decade of the 20th century, is in ha- the role of, uh, of sort of increased production, agricultural improvement, development in rural villages in creating a harmonious and conflict-free Society. So, uh, you know, they're, 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 the government had been very interested in separating agricultural villages from political parties and uh, political activities for precisely this reason. Now, They're supposed to be apolitical, peaceful, harmonious islands of solidarity and community, um, and the landlords don't share this vision. In fact, they rather predictably uh, shape their new authority, the the new um, resources that they have at their disposal that have been opened up by the government to maximize their profits, to ensure their position, their, their superior economic positions and political positions within the villages themselves. And this actually leads to increased conflict uh, and in one of the final acts of my uh, book, it leads to a very large and very successful tenant. Uh, it's not an uprising in the in the in the Edo period sense of an uprising, but it's a tenant challenge through legal channels um, towards the authority of landlords that uh, upsets uh, central officials to some extent. That um, the landlords try to invite the the prefecture to help them out in this conflict, and they are. Completely ignored, they're, they're left to their own devices and they lose. Um, and what follows is a reordering of uh, government interaction with agriculture and a removal of a lot of the, the sort of privileges and power that was associated with landlords and given to them to oversee agricultural development. <laughs>
0: pivot now to this discussion about pedagogy. Uh, So at at Tohoku University, uh, I imagine you teach Japanese history, of course. I do, yes. (laughs) And I'm sure you must come across the Restoration in your classroom lectures. And so I'm I'm curious, uh, when you lecture about the Meiji Restoration, basically what do you tell your students, or how do you fit it in uh, to your narratives of, of
1: Japanese history? So... The classes that I teach at Tohoku University currently are uh, the the one that, that we would deal with the Restoration is basically a, a, a survey of modern Japanese history. So um, in some senses, it's the, the standard course that would deal with...
0: <laughs> where, do you, where do you start your survey?
1: I start my survey around 1800. Um, I have to fit in uh, the, the famine, the mm. te, famine, to, or tempo famine, I should say, um, because this actually relates to how I, how I deal with... Uh, the restoration and and put a particular twist on it because I'm teaching at Tohoku University and in fact a large proportion of my students are uh, exchange students that are coming to Tohoku University from um, Europe Uh, many of these students have taken a a sort of general survey before um, and what I try to teach is modern Japanese history from Sendai or from Miyagi, how it looked like so um, in this way I get a, a I, of course, do the major central sort of history as well. Not all of them have taken the history before and and not a lot of what I would say would make sense without also laying this down, Um, but I try, insofar as possible, to always bring in the perspective of of Miyagi, what it would look like from where they're sitting in this classroom. Um, And so we get uh, farming becomes a very significant part. Um, The farmers, rather luckily, the farmers I study uh, have a role in this. Um, And they get a different view of, of the restoration. They get kind of the view that I've been talking about here today, um, that uh, the, the restoration itself is not a monolithic thing. It's something that had different meanings in different places to different sorts of people, and I try and explore the sorts of meanings that it had to people that were located somewhere near where we're sitting at the moment that I'm teaching. That, that sounds like a great uh, a great pedagogical tool Uh
0: Can you think of uh, or give us an example of, of, say, one exercise you use in in the class to to really drive home that that point or illustrate that point for the students of of how the restoration looked differently from the perspective of Miyagi?
1: Well, one of the interesting differences in Miyagi uh, had to do with the structure uh, in Sendai as a domain uh, before the restoration. Um, So I'll I'll go into two things here. Um, First of all, uh, Miyagi... uh, Sendai domain had a fairly significant proportion of the population as samurai. Um, it was somewhat like Kagoshima. It was heavy on samurai. Um, and again, somewhat different than a lot of domains, the samurai in Sendai were not concentrated in the castle town uh, or exclusively concentrated in the castle town as they were elsewhere. We had, uh, there were rural samurai. Uh, And so when we get into Meiji, we start to see some of the things that are happening in certain areas. We see an involvement of what almost looks like a landed gentry in the form of these rural samurai who continue to be wealthy and established and have these social positions in the areas after the... You know the basis of their samurai status uh, or their place within Sendai domain no longer exists, so that's uh, that has interesting effects in Sendai and that uh, or that provides a, a different sort of view on things. The other part that becomes very interesting, uh, talking about Sendai and Miyagi, is the fact that that Sendai domain was on the losing side of the restoration. They fought against the victorious forces from. Uh, Satsuma and Choshu. Uh, and so they were punished. Um, one of the, the the campus that I teach on, Tohoku University campus, is located where the Meiji army base was built. Um, and this was very much a police state kind of army base. This was an occupying army. Um, and one of the things that I like to tell my students is that um, this is according to sort of local history, that when the American occupation started at the end of World War II, and they built the American army base in the same place as the Meiji army base had been, um, people in Sendai called it the second occupation of Sendai, with the first one being the, the Satsuma Choshu restoration. So the Meiji restoration as uh, a sort of liberating birth of modern Japan as a national thing was not a national thing for a lot of people in Sendai. It was a foreign, well, domestic foreign occupation by outsiders.
0: Um that's a great example of how it really does look different from uh, one particular perspective. It, and In fact, a, a unique perspective that you can't get elsewhere in Japan, perhaps. uh, question. Say we built a time machine, and you were able to go back to northern Miyagi, say the years of, of the Meiji Restoration, the Meiji period. What's one thing from today that you would take back to that time to introduce to the people of Japan?
1: So this is something of a difficult question to answer. I my my first thoughts would go to to something that would, if I was considering northern Miyagi, something that that would help out uh, farmers maybe or or uh, agriculture or something like that. But I I actually don't think that that would be a very easy thing to think about. Instead, uh, this is less based on my research and more based on my personal experiences in Sendai is I would bring a complete and exhaustive record of natural disasters in Japan from the Meiji Restoration to the present so that people could prepare for them um, and minimize the damage. This seems to me to be the best way to have uh, only a positive um, result from meddling with the time streams. <laughs> One last question. What's the deal with beef tongue? Beef tongue is very good. That's part of the deal with it. Um, Beef tongue, again, this, this relates... Why Sendai? Why, why is uh, beef tongue
0: so popular in Sendai?
1: It had, according to everybody I've talked to at beef tongue restaurants, um, the, the original restaurant that served beef tongue is still located in Sendai. It's still the best place to eat it at as well. Um, it has everything to do with the lack of food after at the end of World War II. Um, oh. Beef tongue were not eaten by the military, American military forces. It was leftovers. And so it was possible to get beef tongue very cheap. And an enterprising businessman in downtown Sendai uh, found this to be a lucrative source and figured out a way to make them delicious. And... and turn it into every kind
0: of Japanese food possible. I think I had beef tongue hamburger, I had beef tongue skiaki, beef tongue sushi. You've done more than I have. <laughs> Basically, you imagine a Japanese food and and change the protein to beef tongue, and that's (laughs) sundae.
1: Universally uh, applicable to food. That's a very versatile food, yes.
0: The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Grunow at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, at 150artsubcca Thank you for listening.